and we've been working our way through the letter of First Peter. So all the way back in September is when we began with First Peter, and we take, took a look at chapter chapter one verses six and seven. And when I preached those verses, I began with this picture about twenty four karat gold. 24 karat gold is 100% gold or pure gold, but the problem with it is that it's relatively soft. So if you want to have everyday jewelry, if you want to have a necklace or earrings, uh, usually it's not made out of 24 karat gold because it's a little too soft. So you mix in other metals and you have some lesser degree of gold, like 14 karat gold is typically your everyday jewelry that you would wear in order for it to be durable enough for everyday wear. But if you want 24 karat gold, if you're mining gold or you have gold that you're turning in for money and they want to get the pure gold out, the only way to get pure gold, the only way to get 24 karat gold is through a furnace. And uh, if you put it in a, a crucible and you heat it up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, if you can imagine that, the, the waste metals or what's called the dross come to the top and they're skimmed off. And then what you're left with is is 24 karat gold. And so I concluded in that particular sermon in that opening illustration that being called by God is like being called into a furnace. It's not like being called into a Snuggie, <laughs> which is really what I prefer. A nice warm blanket that surrounds me at any time I have sort of any wound. And what I'm afraid of is that you might be like me, that you got into this thing thinking, well, this Christian thing that I'm going to put on is going to be like a Snuggie. It's going to sort of help all my problems go away. And what I realized is that what I've stepped into is a furnace, not a Snuggie. And so Peter is helping us here and talking about uh, this furnace, this fiery trial that we we come upon. It's so often, like I said, you're, you 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 can have a wrong sense of if if I just keep coming to church, if I if I remain faithful, if I'm if I'm filled with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, then I then I won't experience any kind of crushing darkness on my journey with Jesus. But for every journey, darkness comes. And discouragement and doubt seem to be closer friends than God is at times. And when the bottom falls out of your life, you learn things about yourself. You learn about what you really love. You learn things in the furnace. But what you learn isn't always pretty. This morning, Peter revisits this theme of suffering. And he reminds us in chapter 4 of two things. One... The purpose of the fiery trials. What is the purpose that we're undergoing this fiery furnace? And number two, what's our response supposed to be to these fiery trials? So that's really what I'm going to focus in on, these two things. And there's more to be said than the text or we have time for. But the two things I want to think of is, is what's the purpose of these things? And understanding the purpose helps us move through them. And secondly, how are we supposed to respond to these things? And then finally, I want to conclude just by giving a, a real life illustration from the life of Peter. And I think in this illustration, he provides at least four warning signs for us as we enter into 
fiery trials. So number one, the purpose, the purpose of fiery trials. I want to note before I talk about the purpose in chapter one, verse six, that the trials are various in the Greek. This is a word for variegated. You might have a variegated plant that you've planted. And if that's the case, then it's it's more than one color. It has a different number of different colors in the plant. And so Peter is, I think, mostly talking to a congregation whose most of most of their trials revolve around persecution. He says here in chapter four, if you're insulted for your faith. So he's mostly directing this this idea of fiery trials to People who are under heavy persecution, but I don't think he's limiting it to that because he's saying it's various trials. And this same word trials is used in a number of different places in the New Testament. Galatians chapter four, for example, Paul had a physical illness. Maybe it was from a previous stoning. Maybe it was from something else. We're not sure. But his physical illness wasn't just a trial for himself. He said it was a trial for the people in Galatia. He came with this physical illness and it was a trial for them. And and some of you understand that trial. It's a trial to be physically ill, but it's also a trial if you have to care for somebody who's physically ill, especially long term. It's a trial. It's a test, Paul says. In Hebrews, the writer of the Hebrews talks about the Israelites wandering in the desert. And God said it was a test. And one scholar suggested that the test was this, a lack of permanence, position, power, and provision. So the Israelites are wandering around in the desert for 40 years, and the primary test was there was a lack of permanence. We're always moving. There's a a lack of position. We don't have any particular position. We're just wandering. We don't have any power, and we can't create any of our own provisions. They all have to come from God, and so this was a particular test. Could you really rely on God when you don't have any permanence, when you don't have any position, when you don't have any power, and you can't provide for yourself? Hey, that's a test. And possibly, or maybe certainly, some of you here are feeling the heat of that situation in your own life. You're in a season where you've lost your job. You're used to having, making provisions, giving provisions for yourself, for your family, and, and it's part of a test. Can you keep trusting God at that point? Maybe uh, you're in a place of transition. Your, your future is unclear. I think about especially the college students here that are nearing or having graduated. Maybe there's, you know, I, I was so used to one certain pattern, but now it's unclear. I'm not sure which way my life is going to go. And, of course, that happens more than just when you're in college. Maybe you're in a position where you've lost power or provision. You're you're used to being in a place that pretty much you can control all the situations in your life. You sort of pull the levers to make things happen. But now you're in some particular circumstances that you can't pull any levers. There's nothing for you to do. You just have to wait patiently. And it's a test. Can you exhibit that patience and say, God, even though I'm used to controlling, I'm going to trust that you're controlling and I don't need to have my hands on the controls of my life in a particular area. Mark chapter one, the Holy Spirit, you remember after the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit drives Jesus out into the desert for. For a test, for a trial, and this was an attack by Satan. 
So whatever the trial, the various trial may be, whatever the variegation in your particular circumstances, it may be insult or persecution. It, it may be some sort of lack of power or provision. It, it may be a sickness or caring for somebody with a sickness. It may be that Satan is tempting you in some particular way. All the, all these fall under the sovereignty of God and serve a divine purpose. And one of the purposes we see here in this text The fiery trials are sent to, what does it say? To test. To test. The the fiery trial has come upon you. The the furnace is heating up. And why is it heating up? It's it's heating up to test. And what is it going to test? Chapter 1, verse 7, it's going to test the genuineness of your faith. We're going to find out in the furnace... What's really real? What's genuine? We're gonna, God's trying to get 24 carat Christians. And the way He does that is He, He puts them through, He puts us through tests. Peter is aware of that himself. I don't know if you know what amalgam is. You know what amalgam is? Amalgam is the stuff that they used to use, dentists used to use to put as fillings in your teeth. It looks like silver. And uh, it's not just silver, it's a composite of different metals to make it hard enough so that it can stay in your teeth and you can keep chewing without it breaking down. The problem with amalgam, and I'm very aware of this, is if you get a lot of cavities, like if you're undisciplined in the third grade and you don't brush your teeth like your parents say, but instead you go in the bathroom and just wet your toothbrush and stick it back into the holder then you get a lot of amalgam in your mouth. And, of course, it fits okay, but what's the problem if you open your mouth? Looks like you've been chewing on a lead pipe. And so it's not particularly attractive. So now they put white stuff in your in your fillings instead of that silver. And so amalgam is 50% mercury and 20% silver and 15% tin and 8% copper and has all these other trace metals. And God understands that you and I have amalgamated hearts. We have a heart that has all kinds of different metals in it, all kinds of things that we're trusting, all kinds of different allegiances. We don't have a whole heart. We have a divided heart. And so God says, I see that and I need to put it underneath the test. I need to burn off the things. And you might say, well, yeah, I've got a a 50 percent trust in God. And then, of course, if he doesn't come through, I've got a 20 percent trust in my health. And if that fails, I've got a 15 percent trust in my career or finances or I've got an 8 percent trust in my family. I've got all these other trace trusts. So you sort of enter in your life as a Christian saying, I really trust in God. But, you know, if he up, I've got this other trust. I've got this fallback position. And God said, there is no fallback position. And, and the way we're going to burn off those other trusts, we're going we're to put it in a fire. We're going to put it in the furnace. See, you and I can't know what those other allegiances are, or we can't know how much we trust in them until we go through the fire. The fire separates metals like trials, separates your trusts. Trials help you separate allegiances, and and it's used so that you really have your trust, your functional trust in God alone instead of these other things. 
You're familiar with the prayer in Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart. See, I'm praying. I know, God, I have a divided heart. And please help me trust in you and not have a divided heart. The wise man from Proverbs 17 says the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold. But the Lord tests the heart. So if you ever get into a situation when you're dealing with somebody that's in a depressed place in their lives and they say something like, I have nothing to live for. Then what you know is that what they've put their functional trust in has gone through the fire. And every trust goes through the fire. But what happened is that when their trust went through the fire, when the fire went out, there wasn't anything left. And so they had nothing left to live for. It all got burned away. Two examples of this testing that happens. One from church history, Polycarp, early church history martyr. He died in 156 A.D. because of his faith in Christ. At that point, they were rounding up different Christians and they were saying, you had to swear an allegiance to Caesar. You have to say Caesar's Lord. And even if you really didn't believe it, you just had to say it out loud. And so if you just say it out loud, you're sort of off the hook and you can go back and live your life. But if you come, if the soldiers come and you don't say it, then we've got a Saturday afternoon in a Roman arena for you. And so Polycarp is an 86-year-old man, and they come and find him. And he doesn't agree, so they take him to the Roman arena, and he's in front of a of maybe thousands of people, and he's specifically talking to the, the ruler in that particular area. And the ruler is trying to separate Polycarp from his faith. And so he's, he's insulting Polycarp in front of the crowd, and he's not separated. And when he gets frustrated enough that Polycarp's not bending the knee to Caesar, he says, I'll have wild beasts come out here and tear you apart. And he says, that's okay. Then he gets even more frustrated and said, I'll burn you right here in this arena. Okay, that's okay. And he says this, and I quote, 80 and six years I have served him. And he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? See, see, here's the furnace. And here, here's somebody who's trying to separate Polycarp from his faith, whether it's by insult, whether it's by threat. And Polycarp says no. And finally, he says, why do you delay? Come, do what you will. And they built a, a ring of wood around Polycarp, and they lit it. Polycarp was praying as he died. And his biographer said this, his flesh didn't burn, but it was as if it was gold. Refined in a furnace. So we have to ask ourselves, what, 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 what's our heart like? Now, many of us won't get into that situation, so let me give you something that some of us will get into. Say you're a believer. You're a, you, you trust in God's Word. You believe it's a sure guide. And you're single. 
and you read a verse like 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And maybe you're 14, maybe you're 16, maybe you're 18, maybe you're 20, and you say, that's right, you know, you've got to be together with a believer. But now you're 30. You're a little older than you thought you would be at the point that you would get married. You're starting to panic. Oh, I'm starting to make compromises. Seize a test. Or, or, or maybe you believe that and you are 20 or you're 18 or you're 35 or whatever the age is. And you're trusting in this. But then, gosh, boy, that guy, a handsome man, just walks into my life. And, boy, he sure is winsome. And he's got all kinds of character traits that really mix with mine well. It's just this one small thing he doesn't have. He's not a Christian. See, it's a test. It's a test. That's, that's the, for you, that's a, that is a furnace. Now, are you really going to trust in God's Word? See, we're going to find out at that point what your functional trust is. And so we have those kinds of things happen to us all the time. So one purpose of the fiery trial is to, to test, to, to prove the genuineness of our faith. Second, our response to the fiery trials. Look at verse 12. Do not be surprised. Is there any way even the most modest Bible student could read the Bible and think you should be surprised by suffering? I mean, just think in your head, even if you've, all the stories you have are just vacation Bible school stories from the Old Testament. I mean, who wants to be Abraham? I mean, one test after another. Who wants to be Moses? Who wants to be Noah? Who wants to be Daniel? Who, all these heroes, you go, well, yeah, they, they, it was good right at the end, but man, I don't want to go through the test. I don't want to go through the trials. If you just read the, the, the church founders, Paul, 2 Timothy 3, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter, 1 Peter 2, 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. You should follow in his steps. And of course, Jesus, John 16, in this world you will have a Snuggie. No. You will have troubles. It just shouldn't be surprising. But I, but I have to confess, and my wife can know this so easily, I'm still surprised. I am a pastor of a church. I have a master's of divinity. But somehow, when suffering comes, my attitude is like, what's up, God? I mean, why the suffering? I don't get you. What, what are you about? What's going on? Let me give you some info about how we can change the circumstances. I'm always surprised by the suffering, and I don't know why. I can't somehow get that through, but each time it comes, I'm just like, I can't believe this is happening to me. And I don't know if you might find yourself in that weak situation. Like I think, like, God, I, I know you've worked this way all the way through the Bible. I know you've worked this way all the way through church history. But, you know, I thought I was the exception. I thought that you, were, you weren't going to do the furnace thing on me. 
At one point in my life, I was going through a very difficult trial. And I remember telling a friend through tears that I felt like God had played a cruel trick on me. He had led me into a situation. And then it felt like he walked out. One reason I thought that way is because of my foolish thinking of being surprised. Why should I be surprised? In the Greek, you know what it means for do not be surprised? It means do not be surprised. That's what it means. It's not that complicated, Paul, but somehow I can't seem to get through to my own self on that. One of the things that I think lies behind a lot of bitterness, a lot of anger, a lot of self-pity is surprise. And it comes out like this. I can't believe that's happening to me. I can't believe that happened to me. And you become angry, you can become bitter, or you can have a lot of self-pity. And really, behind that feeling is surprise. Like, I'm not supposed to have to go through that kind of stuff. And, and Peter's saying to his congregation, and I'm saying to you, don't be surprised. Don't be caught off guard by suffering. Tim Keller says this about this verse. Grief and weeping in response to trials will never destroy you, but surprise will. Don't be surprised. It's one of our responses, Peter says. Second, verse 13, rejoice. Much more difficult. Second Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. This is what Paul's writing to the people at Corinth. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. As we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so so that we despaired even of our life. In our hearts, we felt this sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. See, even in that moment, as difficult, he's saying, I'm despairing of my own life. I'm in a situation I don't think I'm going to make it through. And he's not saying, bring it on. I love it. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I'm despairing. But underneath the despair in Paul runs something deeper. And you know what that is? Hope that God is at work. And if you don't have that hope, when you get to the bottom of the barrel, it's over. But Paul, even in even though he's emotionally despairing underneath, he says, but I know God is at work in some way. Maybe I can't see it right now, but I'm trusting the next point. I'm entrusting myself to God that he's carrying me to a place and he's burning off things that would be more harmful than the trial. Charles Spurgeon said. If I can get it right. A ton of troubles. Is much easier to take than one small sin. But see, I don't believe that. I'd rather live with one small sin, frankly. Than a ton of troubles. 
But I'm thankful that God's not willing to live with that in me. So he will bring trials and tests to burn off even the smallest sin. We, we are rejoicing because we know what God is doing. And then look in verse 14. Rejoice because these various trials confirm that you are in union with Christ. And if you're in union with Jesus in his suffering, then you will be in union with him when his glory is revealed. And we talked about this for a couple of weeks, just when the when the presence of God shows up because you've been a faithful follower. You've been a person who's persevered even in difficult times when God finally shows up and his glory comes on. You're going to bust open up the scene saying, yes, I don't know that there's a real match for an illustration like this, but I'm I'm kind of a sucker or a softy for when military people return home. Maybe it's because I grew up in a military home. But, you know, you see the aircraft carriers, you know, come and they all unload at the dock. And the guys that get off first are guys who have had children while they are away. They you know, they got their wife pregnant and then they went out to sea and come back. And now they have a son or a daughter. And, you, you know, I just I can watch this one hour after another. These reunions of a, of a mom and a dad or a mom and a son or a child and a son. And I'm just like, oh, gosh, I mean, that's awesome. And I'm just watching it on television. Imagine if you're the parent. Imagine how much more your heart would be exploding if you had endured your son or your husband or your wife or your child going off and then coming back. Well, that's just a tiny little part of you enduring in difficult times. And when God is revealed, wow. You, tr- you entrust because you know there's something ahead with greater glory in mind. Finally, a third and final response is we entrust. Verse 19. This is a banking term for making a deposit. So it says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust or make a deposit. I'm suffering. Why am I suffering? This is important. I'm suffering according to God's will. He's involved with this. And I'm going to make a deposit. I'm going to deposit my soul to a faithful creator. Peter's, you can hear Peter's passionate, beloved, verse 12, beloved. He's not yelling at him. He he understands the fiery trial. He's saying, beloved, I know you're going to have difficulty. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be physically ill. You're going to lose power or position. You're going to have Satan tempting you. You're going to have all these things. Beloved, don't don't give way and trust. Keep making a deposit. Keep putting your trust in God. The same word in trust is used in Luke chapter 23. It was about the six hour And darkness came over the whole land until it was the ninth hour. And the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I I entrust, I commit. See, see, at the final moment of this fiery trial, Christ was saying, I'm still going to trust. I'm still going to make a deposit. How easy it is, especially when the heat gets turned up in your life, to escape rather than entrust. Don't you find that so easy? 
and the heat's coming up and whether it's self-medication or whether it's doing something that I know is bad, but it sort of brings some moment of satisfaction. I, I really entrust myself to those things because the heat gets turned up. And, and Peter's saying, no, Paul, keep making a deposit in Christ. Don't move in those directions. Keep trusting that Christ is about something in your life that has greater purpose than maybe you can see right now. How easy it is, especially when the heat is turned up, to, to take control rather than trust. See, see, when you're used to being in control, when you're used to pulling on the levers of your decisions and suddenly the decisions are out of your hands for whatever reason. It's a time. That's a test. Who are you going to trust? And it's so easy to say, gosh, I, it's just not working out and I got to get my hands back on the controls. And then what have you deposited into yourself? I really trust myself. I'm not sure God's going to show up just on time. So I make a deposit into myself. And so it's a good chance to ask ourselves, are we entrusting or escaping? Are we entrusting or controlling? Let me finish as we move towards the communion table with the, the warning signs of Peter. This may be the most helpful part of the whole sermon for you. Just thinking about as you're into fiery trials, how do you how do you know you're moving in the right direction? And Peter gives us a a great picture because he got into many fiery trials, but nothing like the last trial when he was with Jesus in the upper room. And here are the four four warning signs. Number one, being overconfident. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, Satan is going to sift you. And what did Peter, what was Peter's response? Yeah, I'm not worried about that. And even if all these other guys, not me. One big warning sign is being overconfident. Oh, that just can't happen to me. If those kinds of things happen to me, I would respond this way. And, and what is what should have Peter done right here? Jesus, Satan has told you he's going to sift me. And you have said you're going to pray for me. Please pray for me more. That's what I would have said. And guys, did you just hear what Jesus said? Can you help me? I'm going to be sifted and you're my, you're my, you're my little fortress. I'm going to stand in the middle and you guys help me. But what does Peter do? The very people that, Pete, that could be helped by Peter, what does he do? He throws them all underneath the bus. So when he's being sifted, do you think these guys are anxious to help Peter? But see, that, that's so easy to do. To just be overconfident. So don't think it's going to happen to you to, to say, oh, other people, they would do that. But, hey, not me. Second thing, failing to pray. Jesus is now in the garden where the heat is beginning to get turned up. And he's gotten Peter and James and or Peter and uh, Andrew, Peter and James and John with him. And he's going a little bit further in the garden, remember, with these guys. And then he, he, before he goes just a little bit further, he tells these guys, would you pray for me? Pray for yourself. But there's a, a lack of pray, prayer. Sleep 
comes easier than prayer. Prayerlessness usually correlates to acting first and entrusting God second. Imagine just one of those men stiffening their spines. Ten other men immediately would have stiffened as well. See, it just takes one person in the crowd to say, no, we're going to pray. And then everybody goes, yes, okay, but, but nobody could do that. So they all fall asleep. Being overconfident, failing to pray are warning signs that you're heading in the wrong direction in your fiery trial. Third, there's a growing distance from Jesus. Here he was standing shoulder to shoulder. He's pulling out his sword. And as they arrest Jesus, he lets Jesus get out on that head. There's some physical space now between Peter and Jesus. And it's geographical here, but maybe for you it's just you're going through a fiery trial. And what you decide to do is withdraw from the church. You're going through a fiery trial and you just kind of stop praying. You're going through a fiery trial and you stop reading your Bible. You're not going to your small group. You're not having an accountability. You're doing things that you're creating distance. So when you're going through a fiery trial, you've got to be closer in, not, not farther away. Or you're in danger. And for Peter, distance leads to denial. Just the final point, lying this is when you know you're in trouble. Just picture the scene for, for a moment. What's Peter's name mean? Rock. Where is the rock? Next to the fire. He's in a furnace. What comes slithering up beside him? Not a snake, a little 12-year-old girl. So here we have the rock. We're going to find out if he's 24 karat. And he's in the furnace. He's right next to the this physical fire, and he's in the midst of the 2,000-degree heat. And I'm guaranteeing you, Peter didn't think the temptation would look like a 12-year-old girl. See, it never does. It never, Satan never comes directly at you. He always comes in some place. You just don't see it. And so he's overconfident. He's not praying. He's distant. And now comes the little girl and says, do you really believe in God? Did God really say? No, I don't believe in God. I don't know who you're talking about. So I don't know where you might find yourself on that spectrum. But it's worth trying to, to look inside your heart and say, what, what, what kind of amalgamation do I have in my heart? And, and pray mercifully that God would mercifully burn off those other things that you would have an undivided heart. Thankfully, Peter is out by a fire. A little girl walks up and says, do you believe, do you trust, do you know Jesus? And he says, no, I don't. It's a terrible scene for Peter. What's happening at the same time inside the court? There's a ruler 
looking at Jesus and saying, are you the Messiah? And what does Jesus say? Yes, I am. And you will see the Son of God sitting on the right hand of God the Father, and he will be coming in the clouds, and they yell, crucify him. And so the only reason Peter can come to this table is not because of his obedience, but because of Christ's obedience. That's the gospel. See, I don't want you to leave thinking, I've got to make it happen. You can't make it happen. You can trust that his obedience is yours. And if you've trusted that his obedience is your obedience, then come. Knowing that you've failed, knowing that you've denied, knowing that you're prayerless, knowing that there's distance, but trust that Christ, his obedience is yours. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to this table, I'm praying for something unseen to happen through very common elements that when you sat around with your friends and said, this is my body and this is my blood, you should take and eat and drink and remember That your obedience is our obedience. Lord, for those who are here who. Maybe their hearts just in a different place, would you help them see that when what they've trusted in goes through a fire, there won't be anything left. That the only thing worth trusting in for your life, for your soul. Is the person and work of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your Holy Son's name. Amen.